Turkey hunting is one of my favorite things. And one of the key tools I use for turkey hunting is the Onyx Hunt Map. I use it incessantly when I'm hunting turkeys. Being able to find a new piece of public or gaining permission on private opens up opportunities for gobblers. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you this spring. Use the code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt. You'll find more birds this season. I'm telling you, I rely on Onyx Hunt when I'm hunting turkeys. It is an invaluable turkey hunting tool. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. If you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the Black Buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states. Or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. All right, everybody, this is the best news to ever happen in the entire history of of everything. Individual Meat Eater episodes from our new season, I'm talking the TV show, not this here podcast, are available for instant streaming and HD downloads right after they air on TV. So you get a new episode every Thursday. There's no embargo, you know, where you got to wait a long time to get a new episode. It comes out on TV, you go to your computer, you watch it on your computer, no problem. Head over to meateater.vhx.tv to instantly watch the new season of Meat Eater in HD. Use the promo code MEATEATERPODCAST at checkout and you get five bucks off any of our previous volumes. Go check it out. Prime viewing for you. All right, thanks for joining the Meat Eater Podcast. We're recording in a very tinny sounding hotel room in Bethel, Alaska. Bethel, Alaska is in Western Alaska. Specifically, it's where the Kuskokwim River flows out into the Bering Sea. Just north of here, you got the Yukon River flowing out into the Bering Sea. And so the delta that these two things form, people say it's the Yukon-Kuskokwim Delta or YK Delta. It's way bigger than the delta made by the Mississippi flowing into the Gulf of Mexico. It's actually... Um, the YK Delta is bigger than the state of Louisiana. It's a huge tundra delta. And this area is predominantly, um, there's 6,000 people in Bethel. It's predominantly native Alaskan, uh, Yupik, Eskimo. We're coming from an island, Nunavak Island, which is 40 miles out into the Bering Sea. The island's about 40 miles by 60 miles, approximately. And that's Chupik. Eskimo out there, um, and the only Chupics, like Chupics just live on Nunavak. There's 200 people on Nunavak Island in a town called Makoriuk, and that's where we're coming from. We're just out there hunting muskox. But speaking of how big the YK Delta is, um, we're here with Mike Washleski. You've never done one of these, Mike, have you? 
Well, we kind of, we kind of tried to do one in Anchorage. Sorry, right, but you didn't say anything. You I didn't were, have a hot mic. Yeah. You didn't, yeah, Mike's done him, but his Mike has done him, but his mic wasn't on. So kind of no. And we were asking Mike. Mike's from Texas, and this morning we were asking Mike if why is Texas so into the thing about how their state's so big, but it's not the biggest state. It's like. Texas fits inside of Alaska, but Texans are always like, yeah, it's a big thing. But it's like, no other second place thing acts like it's the first place thing. I think it's because uh, it was its own country. So that's the claim to fame, I guess, to a certain degree. It's the biggest in the lower 48. I guess you can just say that. Yeah, but it's it's, it's probably it's, carrying over from when, before Alaska. It was the biggest. From before Alaska yeah. became a state. And then it was. Okay, what's a sports team that used to be good and now they suck? <laughs> well, it's like all Like the Packers? The, did the Packers ever used to win? Did they always win the Super Bowls in the old days? I feel like they did. They've been great. Okay, so people, the Packers don't run around being like, yeah, number one champion, right? Yeah. It's like you used to be. You're not now. Now you're just like a team. Yeah. No, Texas. You guys are just like a state. Texas has a lot of pride. Yeah. I mean, people get tattooed. I mean, how many tattoos do you see of, like, you know, Massachusetts on somebody's shoulder? Well, here, the, you tattoo 907 on your arm. Is that the area it's code? It's a single area code state. Like Wyoming, Montana. So what happens whenever there's another area code? And, and you happen to have that tattoo? Uh, you do slash, <laughs> then you're, uh, you're the, next, the next three numbers. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a... <laughs> you oh, remember. Also, so so Mike's a, a camera operator and still photographer, um, and works with us uh, on the show media. We're actually coming from filming an episode of Media, and we're also joined by Giannis Butelis, who who you know is always hanging around, is always kind of murmuring in the background there. And then Corey, how do you say your last name? Kutchmark or Kutchmark or Kazmarek. So Which do you like? Depending on the day, it's like if you want to. Tell someone how it sounds. It's chasmeric. If you look at it. Yeah. Corey comes from a big state, 646 miles wide, Montana. And um, what's super interesting about Corey, tell him what you used to do before you started being a cameraman. I'll tell him. Corey was the dude. Corey's one of the dudes that jumps out of a helicopter with a snowboard and goes down a big, huge mountain that looks like you're going to die. Talk about that just for a quick second. Oh, I've been snowboarding like 25 years, and uh, I think my favorite kind of snowboarding is big mountain snowboarding. So I used to compete. Big mountain? Big mountain. Big, big mountain. Sorry, I got a little bit of a cold. But uh, yeah, I was competed at a professional level, traveled around, big mountain snowboarding. And I one time asked Corey, we were hunting, and I asked Corey if there's ever been a mountain that other dudes would go down on their snowboard and he wouldn't go down. And at the time, he said no. you never seen a dude go down a hill and then you said, there's no way I'm going down that hill. I could go down the hill. There might be routes where right now my age, I'm only 39, but... That's old for a snowboarder. To be jumping off 50, 60-foot cliffs. Yeah. You know, K2 or, uh, I don't know, Everest would be one that I would question, but... <laughs> If it was at low elevation, I could probably make it down okay. You know, it's the elevation that'll get you on those mountains. What do you mean? I mean, just the, the air. The air, yeah. You could just be snowboarding and just pass out, you know. Is that right? Oh, yeah. Hey, what, what is it? What's the death zone? We, 20, what is it? 25,000, I think. 
So do you snowboard down hills where, I don't want, I, I do want to talk about snowboarding for a minute. Um, do you snowboard down hills where if you fell, you would die? Yes. Yeah, I do that a lot. So you have to keep upright. Yeah, you don't want to fall. Or usually it's, you're exposed, so if it's steep enough where you can like fall and you start getting momentum, it's the ragdolling effect you when you're going ass over heels all the way down the mountain, you know, and then that's when you will probably die of trauma or go over a cliff or, you know, so you don't want to... Smack into a tree. Or trees. Did that happen a lot? I mean, did you see that? Like, it happens all the time. Well, I mean, like during a competition. Oh, during competitions. He can't get to the bottom of the hill for all the carcasses laying everywhere. <laughs> this guy actually, he's actually well, I mean, snowboarding there, is deaths, there are some deaths in that competitive scene. You know, it's just unfortunate, but you are a risk. You know, it's a time of day you wake up. It's competition day. You're at the top, and you're going to push your limits. And some people try to go a little past their limits, or some people just mess up off takeoffs and maybe land into the, an oncoming rock or cliff because you're, you're looking at it from the bottom with your binoculars, this mountain face. And then you have to go up top and kind of turn that whole, you know, vision 180 in your head because you're going to go down the mountain now. So you're flipping the image and you have to remember like this rock, this tree, this four foot tree, you know, three feet to the left, I got to take off there and it's going to be a 10 foot wide landing and then I got to take a hard left here because this is a, you know, there's either trees or another 40 foot cliff. So you got to like, it's a little puzzle you put into your head and then, you know, you're at the finish line, hopefully. Safe. And how fast are you going? I mean, it's depending on uh, your route, route finding. You Are know. you judged on speed? Uh, it's not really speed. You know, the, the judging criteria was line choice, which the line you pick going down the mountain, control, your fluidity, your aggressiveness, and um, style. Sounds like a lot of like pretty arbitrary stuff. It's like figure skating. Yeah. You know. Best but man. what speed would you hit? Oh, you can hit easy, you know, you point, point to shoot for a long period of time, you can be going 50 easily, So do you real go, quick. Do you go on these mountains, like, sight unseen? Like, you're like, here's your mountain, figure out the map, and then you've never actually done the route. You just yeah, to, true. That's at the high level. The low level, they'll let you go onto the face, ski around, look off things. You know, that's called an inspection day. You get one run through, and you get to find your route, and that, you know... It's pretty explosive skiing when you have, when you can go see where you're going. So these guys are just flying down the mountain. But when you have a, there's actually a contest. The world tour is in Haines, Alaska this week. And uh, would you normally be at that right now? I followed that tour. I used to snowboard on that tour for uh, two years, and uh, I've worked it probably like four years. Worked it as a as cameraman. a cameraman. Yeah. Yep. So. Yeah, you just, it's just the adrenaline thing. It's like hunting, like, probably sheep or something, I would say. Yeah. I hunt, but I'm not like these guys, you know, not like Steve, those who are listening. But, you know, you get that same adrenaline rush, probably. Chasing sheep, walking these cliff edges, trying to find the sheep, probably, and you don't want to fall here with your big pack on. Yeah. Because if you do, you're going to get messed up way in the backcountry, and it kind of brings... Me and Mike peeked over a couple edges. 
<laughs> in prison land. <laughs> yeah, I remember one in particular. I, was like, I wasn't about to snowboard down. Yeah, I was just like, Steve, you can go ahead and look over that edge. I'm just, I'm cool right here. So at, uh, let's go way, way back. Well, I'm, I'm going to go way back in time for a minute here. During like the Pleistocene epic, you had muskox all the way, like there's, there's a term circumpolar, like muscles, like the blue muscle you eat when you get muscles in a restaurant. The blue muscle is circumpolar. There's a band of latitudes around the globe that that muscle exists at, okay? Um, way back during the Pleistocene, the European Stone Ages, you know, where you got humans spread around, but still a long time ago, muskox were circumpolar. They were like all through the Arctic, but way down, man. Like there's cave paintings of muskox down in France. So Cro-Magnon people, Stone Age Europeans were hunting for muskox. If it's any indication that they used to paint the stuff they hunted on cave walls from 30,000, 35,000 years ago, you had muskox way down there. Um, interestingly, by the time anyone... Due to under our current understanding, by the time any human being stepped foot in the Western Hemisphere or in, in this stepped foot in North America, muskox only existed in North America, it seems, by that point in time. Um, when the Russians first started dicking around in the Arctic, and you know, some Amer and, and Americans were coming up, not quite Americans yet, but were coming up into the Arctic, they were running to muskox all through Alaska, the Canadian high Arctic, into Greenland, like everywhere. But they whittled away at them and whittled away at them. And they, by about 1820, muskox were gone from Alaska, extirpated. Uh, you'll often, if you're reading about what happened to all the muskox, and that's what, like, let me, let me back up one quick second. A muskox is a big, woolly animal with like a horn boss where his horns drop down and sort of gold on the side of his head and curl out like a, what's that haircut we were saying? I can't. Like is it a Betty Page? Yeah, yeah. No, it's like Little Debbie on the Little Debbie snack cake. Yeah, yeah. If you ever eaten a Little Debbie, what are one, what are some of those Little Debbie deals? Remember those? The uh, man, uh, she was a big sponsor. Of ding dongs. Ding dong. You're eating a ding dong. <laughs> um, it's like a muskox's horns, like are sort of plastered over the top of his head and dropped straight down into candy cane hooks. They got real woolly coats. In fact, they produce a wool called kiviet, and it's supposed to be X times warmer than any other kind of wool on the planet. A big bull might be six, seven, eight hundred pounds. Um, and they live in coastal Arctic regions. People, you'll, you'll read different things. You'll read like, oh, the Russian fur traders wiped out the muskox. And then some people will point out that the Russian fur traders didn't actually wipe out the muskox. Natives wiped out the muskox operating on behalf of Russian fur traders who wanted the meat and the hides. So whatever it was, Russians came in flashing big money around and people shot the muskox out. Peary, like when you hear about Arctic explorers, you hear about the guy named Peary. Some guy sat down and figured out how many muskox did Peary's expeditions alone account for. And they figured, like, Peary killed 600 muskox to feed his expeditions. The Arctic explorer Stephenson, he's always eating muskox. 
Um, we'll get into why it's easy to wipe out muskox and how you could probably wipe out muskox the second time if you felt like it within about five months, five or six months if you felt like it. They're not difficult to find, but they wiped them out of Alaska by the mid-1800s. Then in 1930, I'm just giving you some background here. In 1930, they brought 30-some muskox from Greenland, one of the places where they hadn't been extirpated. So like the super remote shit muskox never got killed out of. They never got killed out of Greenland. And I think like Banks Island, the Coronation Gulf area, the way Canadian high Arctic stuff, they never got wiped out of. So in 1930s, someone was like, man, we should get some muskox back. They went to Greenland, got some muskox, and eventually put those muskox out on Nunavak Island in the Bering Sea, which is off western Alaska. And they dumped them out on Nunavak Island. They just let them start reproducing. And it wasn't much time at all. They had hundreds of the things. So at that point in time, like as late as 1965, the only muskox that existed in, in the U.S., besides for a captive zoo specimen here and there, were the pop, was the population on Nunavak or Nunavak. Uh, they went out and caught some of those in the 60s to start an experimental herd in Fairbanks where they wanted to start messing around with this idea of using it as an agricultural product where you'd raise muskox to get the wool kiviet and you'd have like economic development in rural areas. That seems to have kind of gone nowhere. As that herd on Nunavak expanded, they kept, or grew in numbers, they kept peeling off some to start all these herds. And now if you look at a map of Alaska and where muskox live, they're kind of like back to everywhere they would have been. You got them on Seward Peninsula, the first muskox I ever seen, the first time, the first three times I ever ran into muskox was all hunting caribou on the North Slope. They got muskox on the North Slope, around Prudhoe Bay. They're around, and that's kind of how they came to be. So hunting opportunities are extremely limited for muskox. The hunt I did, the state of Alaska, the hunt I just did, the state of Alaska calls like DX003. It's a hunt unit you apply for. It's a tag that's good from February 1 to March 15th on Nunavak Island. And it has, I don't know, it's about a 9% chance of drawing the tag. They're giving out fewer and fewer tags right now. The herd's not doing great on Nunavak. I think this year they gave out 20 tags for the winter hunt. And then, I don't know, five or 10 tags for the summer hunt. Um, the, the spring hunt they call is the March hunt, and it's cold. So did you choose Nunavak specifically, or are there other draws in different areas of the... the this year, Nunavak is the only draw a non-resident can put in for. So like the way Alaska will run hunt is Alaska has over-the-counter stuff, which is just over-the-counter stuff. Tag you go and buy. You can buy it the day you want to go hunting. They have registration hunts, which are first come, first serve, open to residents. Then they have like the then they have like a tier one draw, which is a resident draw. Then they have just like the drawing hunts. And so if a non-resident wants to put in for a muskox tag, so if you don't live in Alaska and you want to hunt muskox, right now, Nunavak's your only option. You can go up the Northwest Territories and just buy permits from guides. But if you want to hunt here, that's it. Nunavak Island. I was awarded one of the tags several years ago and wasn't able to go. And I never thought I would have had another chance. It's almost not even fair that you can draw it and draw again. Like a lot of stuff's not that way. If you draw a buffalo tag in Alaska, that's it for the rest of your life. If you draw a toke sheep tag, it's it for like four or seven years. 
I don't know why they let you keep cracking on muskox. It's not fair, but I did it, and I got a second tag and went back, and we just got back. Um, what was interesting was that the locals on the island had to, it was a first-come, first-come, first first first-served basis. It's ridiculous. get a tag on the island, even, you know, out of the 200 people there, I think uh, one, our, one of our uh, guides was saying, Raymond, that he stood in line, or he was the first one there, and he was two days early, so he must have stood in line two days to get a tag. Yeah. So yeah, tags are always distributed. Like generally, I shouldn't say always. Registration hunts are you go online and get the tag. It's like a, or you go some you have to go into the actual office and get a tag. So you might have a registration hunt where you got to go to Bethel, Alaska to pick up your tag, right? And that really limits it to dudes in Bethel because people aren't generally going to fly to Bethel to pick up a tag. The residents, the Chupik on Nunavak Island, every year get allocated some number of tags. This year, I think it was five cow tags, five bull tags. Mm-hmm. There's 200 people that live on the island. Um, it's not online. It's that a dude from Alaska Department of Fish and Game flies out there with the tags and hands the tags out to the first guys waiting in line. So Rain was saying the same people seem to get the tags every year. So he went and waited in line two days in a row this year so that when the guy that showed up, he got a cow tag for a muskox. Yeah, and he's out there right now. He's out there two days. He's probably out butchering a muskox right now. Yeah. And that's a subsistence hunt for him. There are a lot of muskox hunts in Alaska where it's a registration hunt and you have to destroy the head of the muskox. You have to saw the horns in half. Really? They have those for moose, too. You know, they don't want you doing the hunt. They don't want a trophy dude coming out to do the hunt. So they make it that, sure, you can go get the registration thing and hunt the muskox, but you don't get to keep the head. You got to destroy the head. I read an article about a guy who was involved in the game commission in Alaska who tried to pull a fast one. And he, because you can buy handicrafts from indigenous people like you know people are trying to sell us seal hats right you can't buy a seal skin from a native alat like you can't buy a seal skin from a chupic for instance because of the marine mammal protection act but if that individual takes that seal skin and makes something out of it you can buy it from them like you can buy carved ivory but you can't buy raw ivory so could they give you, so say, this is a square seal towel. That's the thing. <laughs> That's what I, people wonder about that all the time. And like, I, I don't know, somewhere it's spelled out. But anyway, some guy had gone and said, well, I'm going to go do a registration muskox hunt. Kill my muskox. Give the head to a native woman. Have her do a carving on it. And then buy it back from her. And they determined that that violated the spirit of that law. I'd be like, just a little teeny carving on the bottom would be fine. <laughs> <laughs> Write your name on the, on the, the upper palette. <laughs> the one that sits on the wall. So the, the, first, like, the biggest thing that coming up, like coming up to go out and hunt, what, what else should we say? What, what else is important to establish about muskogs? They taste good. Talking more about that boss, you know, I read that the horns and then the skull beneath it to where the brain cavity starts is eight to ten inches thick. Is that right? Muskox bash heads when they, it's like sheep do. Yeah. Like when bighorns are bashing heads, it sounds like a 22 rifle. In fact, 
I was out hunting one time and thought a guy kept shooting a gun and later realized it was two bighorns cracking heads. I saw a bighorn ram a tree one time. I counted. He ran that tree 75 times and I quit counting. <laughs> Are you serious? 75 times in a row. A bighorn sheep can withstand 40 times. The, the, a bighorn sheep can withstand the amount of power to his head 40 times greater than what would fracture your skull. Why do you think he was in the tree for practice? Just getting pumped up, I guess. It's his time of year. It was September. They don't rut till November. He's like a football player just like banging his helmet on the wall. He was banging a ponderosa pine. And all of his buddies must have did the same thing because his ponderosa pine looked like someone had been hitting with a baseball bat for about three years. Yeah, it was nuts. So they got a well, yeah, what's called a horn boss. Where the horns are like on top of their head. It's like if a girl who's got thick old hair. Pulls, splits her hair down the center and makes a braid or like a pony, a pigtail on each yeah, side. Yeah, almost, like, almost like piggy tails. That'd be like a hair boss. And the horn boss is just this amorphous blob of horn that sits up there. And as the bull gets bigger, it grows bigger and bigger. And that thing's polished off like someone took a palm sander to it. It looks kind of like an ass. It does. Yeah. Not off anyone I know. No. But yeah. <laughs> it's ass-like. In that it has a gluteal crease. It has a crack, yeah. <laughs> um, beautiful animals. You, when, you, when you're reading about muskox, because muskox like live in the Arctic, and they're real woolly. People are always be like an Ice Age relic. But all animals that we know about today, with the exception of perhaps the mule deer, are Ice Age relics. I never, I think people say that because it's woolly. But like, why don't people say human beings, the Ice Age relics? Like we were alive during the Ice Age. Or you might say the field mouse, the Ice no, Age it's just, relic. No, it's because it still lives in a Ice Age-like climate. Is that what they mean? I think so. I think so, yeah. You remember the lead up to the Iraq War? I was reading that Saddam Hussein had published several books of poetry and novels. And I would always say Saddam Hussein, the poet and novelist. You know? It's like... In conversation, say, yeah, I'd be like, you know, Saddam Hussein, the poet and novelist, his country's being invaded. Um, but yeah, like everything's a, like everything's the Ice Age relic. But that might be what they mean that it's out on the tundra, which would mean you'd have to say um, a vole, the Ice Age relic. He still lives on the tundra. Mm-hmm. You know, it just looks like a throwback to like. It, a that's what it is. Yeah. You think you're looking at a mammoth. Yeah. That thing had hair on it. The one we butchered, the muskox we butchered, had hair on it that was over 18 inches long. Short of a horse's tail, nothing has hair like that. Applying for tags each year in the West can be daunting. Yeah, I apply for everything everywhere. It's daunting. You have to go to a variety of sources to formulate your best guess as to where to apply. Well, this is a thing of the past now. Onyx just launched hunt research tools to simplify the process for all hunters. This tool helps organize the data that matters, makes comparing hunt options easy, and helps hunters develop a plan based on real metrics rather than gut feelings. Onyx Hunt also offers all elite members a free digital membership to Hunt and Fool, who I use, for boots on the ground insight and knowledge, and a membership to Hunt Reminder, so you never miss another deadline. Stop stressing over application season and apply with confidence in 2024. Check out OnX Hunt Research Tools, free for all OnX Hunt Elite members. Not an elite member? 
Well, let's fix that. Use code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt. This is an app I use literally every day. I use it for every aspect of hunting, scouting, trapping, you name it. Spring is a great time to do something with your family. Do some spring cleaning, which I kind of started today outside. Planning outdoor activities, which I'm always doing. Taking a little trip to Hawaii with your kids for spring break, which I just did, which was great. You know what else you can do for your family this spring? You can shop for life insurance with Policy Genius. Make that part of your financial planning for the year. I've said it before a thousand times. I'll say it again. When my wife and I, when we started having kids, we got serious about life insurance. And man, I felt so much better after we did. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just 292 bucks per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Even if you already have a life insurance policy through work, it may not offer enough protection for your family's needs, and it may not follow you if you leave your job. So save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Hey man, after years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there is always a catch. So when I heard that for a limited time, all Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, well, what's the catch? But it turns out there isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, Go to mintmobile.com slash meat eater. That's mintmobile.com slash meat eater. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash meat eater. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 per month. New customers on first three month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Yeah, it was very interesting to see him standing there and then actually moving, running, and it's almost like they had a skirt mm-hmm. around him. And that hair almost seemed like it, it was close to the ground. Almost hits the ground. Yeah, almost yeah. hits the ground. The writer Peter Matheson, who wrote a book about, like there's some natives called muskox, not on not the Chupik, but some natives call muskox umingmak. Peter Matheson wrote this book. It's sort of like a magazine article that turned into a book that he wrote. And he relates that wool, the way it sways, he talks about it reminds him of chain mail moving. And he also has a line where when they're in tall grass, the grass coming up from the ground and the wool coming down from the animal meet in a way that makes it hard to sort of distinguish where one ends and one begins. So kind of like they're just gliding across the... Yeah, as the animal moves. They do seem to glide, like they're on wheels almost. Super woolly. And um, I remember, like, when I was working on my Buffalo book, I remember reading it. They did this study where they took um, different animals. They had a, high, a Scottish Highland cattle, a Tibetan yak, and a buffalo, and put them in Connex containers and started lowering the temperature. 
to find out at which point the animal's metabolic rate went up in response to the, to the drop in temperature. Like it would basically be like when you started shivering and getting like not relaxed. And they had a, I think they had like an Angus in there. He tapped out at like 10 degrees. Um, the Scottish Highland cattle tapped out. The Tibetan yak tapped out. The coldest they could get that Connex container was negative 40, and the buffalo was still relaxing. But I'm telling you, a muskox had smoked that thing. You can't, you can't find his body. You know what I'm saying? When he's laying there dead, you can't, it, you can't get your hand to where it's touching leather. Like where you'd part it. Like if you're looking at your dog to find ticks, you can't do that with a muskox. You can't find him underneath there. It's really hard to tell what is in there. You know? It's very thick. Where'd you guess that? We were just packing that. that we checked in the hide already at uh, Alaska Air. and How much that hide weigh? Uh, yeah, I threw it on 85. the 85, I think. Yeah, the hide. No hooves on it. So this is a hide cut from the ankle. Skinned out and clean skinned. I mean, not a scrap of fat or meat on that hide. That hide weighed 85 pounds. Well, the layer of skin, too, is super dense, too. Way thick, fat, fat, yeah. fat leather. Yeah. The biggest thing, I'll say this, like, I, I, as we get into this discussion about muskox, I just want to cut right to the main primary point. And, and, and leading up to this hunt, not the primary point, but just something to think, this is going to tee off a whole other conversation. Leading up to this hunt, I was talking to this dude who was saying, it's not really a hunt. It's like an experience. And when we were out, I had observed to someone how all animals have like a vulnerability um, that we exploit when we hunt them. You know, deer are suckers for alfalfa and shelled corn, right? Um, turkeys, when they're breeding, they're very vocal, uh, right? Everything. Sure. Kind of find their weakness and that's how... Yeah. Ducks are gregarious, right? Ducks want to be around other ducks. So you play that against them. You make sounds that sound like a duck. You put out some fake ducks. Duck can't help himself. He's got to go check it out, you know, generally. The thing you exploit on the muskox is they just like got nowhere to go, for one. And they'll bunch up when they're threatened. They'll, they'll bunch up and stand around. And it's easy to see how dudes wiped them out. They got nowhere to go. You know, and they can't really put on miles very fast, like not that fat, not like most stuff can put on miles. So this guy was saying the hunt's more of an experience, and I can say that it is, and I would almost, having done it now, I would almost say that it's not really a hunt, but what makes it, like the hunting the animal, I wouldn't say is really like a hard hunt. What makes it what it is is the conditions you're dealing with. And the, the getting to the place you're going to and being in the place you're going to is tough. Like, how would you guys sort of describe the cold and wind? Oh, it's full tundra, negative 25 below with that wind, or yeah. wind chill. What was the coldest and temp we saw? I think it, um, well... It was negative, it was negative 10... No wind chill. Yeah, that's just, that was just air temperature. Yeah. Well, the wind's whipped. 
Yeah, yeah. Yesterday it was. I mean, there was gusts like to thirty, and so I just. I mean, I think who knows what the wind chill was. It's probably like negative twenty five. I mean, it was cold. And you're in the middle of the Bering Sea, so the humidity level is way high. Yeah, it's like the, comparing Michigan ten degrees to Montana ten degrees. That Michigan ten degrees is way. Cold. But this is way different. Yeah, like the, no, this island is not. It's hard at times when we were fishing cod, Tom cod through the ice. I couldn't tell when I was on land or on ice. Yeah, it's all just a big white blanket that's undulating. It's like I feel like why aren't we kind of drilling a hole over the dirt? <laughs> And you realize that you are out. It's like there's no real protective buffer on land. No vegetation. Well, it, I mean, there's tundra, but nothing to block the wind. The wind howls. Well, man. The funny thing is, is like they've they've got, you know, sand dunes, but they're made of snow. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it's it. It's nice and you know it's soft, but those are I mean those are sand. You know, they're snow dunes, just blasted by the wind. They just move, just as you know a sand dune would on the beach, but it's just white blistering cold i was wearing just just this is just to go stand around i was wearing bunny boots bunny boots are like government issue cold weather korean war boots which are rated to negative 63 degrees fahrenheit yeah which you know we should we should go ahead and just jump in and promote some bunny boots because if anybody does any cold weather activities and needs some cold boots that you're not going to really hike too far in Spend the sixty to hundred bucks, get some military surplus bunny boots, and you will not be disappointed. There really isn't. No one makes a boot that can go. No one makes an equivalent. There is no equivalent. And the other thing is, it's sealed rubber. So, like we always warm ice fishing because you can't. You can fill the boot up with water, but the water can't get to the insulation. It's it's wool sealed between rubber. Bunny boots, if you like, bunny boots, are these big ass white boots that actually have a pressure valve on the side that you need to like open when you're flying so you don't burst the boot. When I was a kid, they were five bucks. I mean, we just had bunny boots, man, five bucks a piece. Now they're what? 120. Yeah, something like that. And they got like instructions written on them. It says like double lace to hold firmly, and then it says um, open valve when airborne. And they're white. They're great. I mean, oh, you, I love you can, them. yeah, nothing, nothing would have, I mean, running on them was terrible. I they mean, sweat, though. And, yeah, and you yeah, sweat. you sweat. They're not for walking, man. People call them Mickey Mouse boots, too, but then I was hearing, like, the Mickey Mouse are the different. black ones. I didn't know this till recently. If you see black bunny boots, which are Mickey Mouse boots, they're not, I thought it was just you could get them in black or in white, but black is not as cold rated as white. Black's negative 20. White's negative sixty something. I think it's negative sixty. Which is one of the few things in life that's actually true. Because like when someone tells you sleeping bags rated for negative ten, they're lying. <laughs> that's the survival rating, though. Yeah, the comfort rating is probably like twenty. Yeah, survival rating. Like I always go. I don't know. I carry a sleeping bag that's probably like I'll generally go ten or twenty degrees off of what they're saying is the rating. For me, it's my. Legs get cold. Yeah. Anyways, these boots are legit. Some warm ass. I've boots. never been had such comfortable feet out in times like that. So yeah, so I'm running around in like thick merino blend socks, bunny boots, merino LJs, then like a 
REI kind of sweat panty thing. Down pants. Then like the new first light bibs, what do you call them? Sanctuary, which are some heavy, nice bibs. Synthetic insulation. Then I got a merino base layer, a merino hoodie, a fleece shirt, the same first light type sanctuary jacket, then a giant down puffy, a neck gaiter, a face mask, another face mask, a fur hat, gloves, and beaver fur mittens. And goggles. And goggles. And at that point, you're feeling pretty bulletproof. <laughs> like, you're just not cold. Did you get cold ice fishing? No. Oh, yeah, my feet did because I was kneeling for so long. Yeah. And by then, I'd sweated up my boots. My boots are sweaty right now. Um, it's just cold, man. Like in a, I mean, that's the coldest I've, I mean, the coldest to this point that I'd ever experienced, I think was when we were in Montana for elk. And that was like, I think it was like five. When we were in the wall, teepee tent? The teepee tent. Yeah. I mean, at night, but when we were out in the, in the environment hunting and stuff, I mean, those are the coldest temperatures I'd ever experienced. And so I'd never, I, this is the first time I've ever felt negative temperatures. Yeah. But what was wicked about, it's almost more wicked in Montana because you got to move, you got to climb. Right. Nunavak's flat. Right. And you're on snow machines. So you can get all bundled up. And if you're conservative, dude, when we, when we walked a little ways, I was pouring sweat, man. But out there when it's so cold, if you watch those guys, they have like the, the Chupic, man. They have like a, you don't see a lot of people jogging around town. They're like very purposeful movements, man. You're playing in the head. Like there's this, this tentativeness pervades about what the weather's doing. I remember like the day we got there, a kid had gone out. He was going out on a snow machine to fish. He's going to fish Dolly Vardens. And he was coming back. I'm like, we were like, oh, you out fishing? He said, we called it off. Because they had seen some, some kind of weather thing. You know? Anybody else like would have been like, ah, let's go anyways. But just like a, you know, deep respect for the weather, man. Oh, yeah. Like, you do stuff when the weather says it's okay to do it. Yeah. You know? I mean, they weren't even... And not bashful about it. It's not like... They don't try to act like... Those dudes don't try to act like... Like, we'll try to act like, hell, I'm going anyway, man. Can't hold me back. You know? They're like, no, the weather's no good. I'm not going. We're going the weather's right. Because <laughs> they know how much it sucks. Because they know, man. It's ridiculous, yeah. man. Yeah, nature will, uh, you know, put you on your ass in an instant... Oh, it's deadly. And they're traveling long distances on snow machines. So you might be like, oh, yeah, they're hunting off snow machines. But it'd be kind of like saying, like, yeah, but, dude, you're hunting out of a truck because you drive to where you start hunting. They're hunting 50 miles away, 25 miles away from the village. So you might think, like, you might all feel, like, proud of yourself because you hike in a mile to where you hunt. But... If you're hunting 26 miles from your house and you drive in a car 25 miles and then walk one mile and feel proud of yourself because you walked a mile to where you hunt, I don't know. Is snow machining 26 miles in negative temperatures like that gravy? No, not at all. It's really not. It's like it's a difficult place to be out in, you know, and that really plays into how you hunt. It's like a difficult place to be out in, you know. So there's this sort of like, uh, 
they're like in that cold when you're not accustomed to it. And then being out and you're in a strange place and it's sea ice, which looks like not like a frozen hockey pond. I mean, it's just like a jumble of ice piled up is out there in the wind. I don't know, you get like this, I don't want to say like a feeling of danger, but you get a feeling of, as an outsider, you get a feeling of being on on the edge of something. It's like another planet. Yeah. It is. And the guys that live there are not flippant about it. They're probably more paranoid, not paranoid, more cautious, you know. Respectful. Oh, then we would be. For sure. Yeah. And, and yeah, until you gain that respect. So do you think if, if somebody said, okay, go hunt a muskox, and then you, they just dropped you there, you know, you would obviously you wouldn't have the same approach as you do now, having done it. Just start beating the ground? Yeah, just like, well, I'm going to go walk over there and look around and find them and get them. It's, it's, hard, to th- it's hard to picture how you do it. Yeah. You would just have to travel just like Arctic ski explorers do now. You'd have to travel with a sled behind you on skis, You'd have to be packing, you know, whether it's Arctic ovens or I don't know what. The, yeah, alcohol yeah, stove. Yeah. There's no wood to burn. Yeah. You travel with the alcohol stove. Like we got, for our, our, we have an Arctic oven tent and we got a thing called like the Heat Pal 5500. It's like a sailboat heater. Burns denatured alcohol. But to keep warm in those conditions, you're going to be going through a, at least a quart of alcohol a night. Well, and how are you going to get everything back if you get one? It's like. Yeah, then here's this seven hundred the seven hundred pound bull laying there and you snow you you skied thirty miles out of the it's village. Forty below. They're excited if they can find a musk ox within twelve miles of McCoryuk. Let's talk about McCoryuk for a minute. Like when the Russian like when the when the Russians first made contact with the Chupik, they said there was four hundred people living on Nunavak in something like seventeen villages or something. Yeah, that's what I read. People were living at every river mouth. Now there's 200 people in one village. Yeah. Later, some. And I Russians, think they go to some of those old villages now, and now they're fish. just. Then now they're just called fish camps. Yeah. Oh, is that what they meant by fish camps? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah. Once, like church, a church came, a school came, people got centralized. Later, someone came and estimated there were 700 people living in like far fewer villages and far more people. After the Russians first made outside contact. Um, so now everybody in Makoryuk, uh, everyone on the island lives in Makoryuk. There's about 200 people. It's just like on a spit of snow out on the Bering Sea. And what's interesting about it is it's like they still live very much. I mean, there's, you know, everybody's got a TV, right? There's electricity. Surface level stuff, like very modern existence, but underneath it is that it's still subsistence lifestyle. Um, they hunt seals, they hunt walrus, they do subsistence fishing, they eat stuff that Americans won't eat easily, like chum salmon. You know, people are always like talking about fresh salmon, they don't catch their salmon, they fish chums for food for human consumption. They fish chums after the chums have spawned. And they look like hell. They got fungus all over their fins. Then they net them and eat them because they, the less fat on the fish but allows, the allows fish it to, to dry, dry faster. Yeah. They eat dried fish dipped in seal oil a lot, which is something we ate kind of. Um, one day, 
after we hunted muskox, we went out to fish a fish called tomcod. And we went, uh, I mean, how close were we to the bank? 20 feet. Just like, yeah. took forever to drill. We had a dull spud. <laughs> I don't even know if you call it. It was basically like trying to spud a hole to drink and straw, man. It's like a hunk of metal. A crowbar. I mean, I guess crowbar would be even sharp, sharper. I mean, it was Crowbar's like, way sharper. Yeah, it was blunt. Two feet, right, Vice? Slowly chiseled a hole. You couldn't have pulled a can of beer up through that hole. Well, that, and, like, well, but it started wide. By the time that some bitch got through the bottom of the ice, you couldn't have shoved a beer can through it. And that was the second hole. The first hole just petered out. Yeah, it hit dirt, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. We chilled. We chiseled another hole and got down to the ice. Ended at dirt. There's no like water column underneath the ice. So we go drill a second hole, and he's got a rig where he's got like a stick with some line wound around two dowels punched into the stick at perpendicular angle to the dowel. And there's a handful of beads on there and a banana. So it's like it runs from the monofilament to a barrel swivel. Then there's like five or six beads. No, a banana weight. Then five or six beads and a big-ass, rusty, dull treble hook. He lowers that thing down that hole. I'm like, come on, dude. That ain't going to work. And out pops a Tom Cod within seconds. Yeah, man. it was so fast. We sat out there and caught 30 Tom Cod. Just like sometimes it's as fast as you can pull them out of the ice. And it was with the tide, right? I mean, the... the uh... Yeah, he said like tide, tide fluctuations affect it. And whenever the tide changed, you could hear like boulders and stuff moving under an ice. There was this dull thud. Yeah, stuff moving Kind of resonating through the, the ground. This dude that we, like when you hunt the Nunavak hunt, you have to hire a guide. Um, or, an, or you have to hire what's called a transporter. Because the only way to get on Nunavak is you have to land on native land. Most of the island is, what, what's the refuge? It's the uh, Yukon Kuskokwim Delta National Wildlife Refuge. So, Yana, speak to about the land ownership issues. Who owns what, where we could hunt, where normal dudes can hunt? Because it's kind of interesting. Yeah, because we always have to get film permits to hunt public land. Usually costs us anywhere from thousand to two thousand dollars for a week long shoot to be on to be filming public land. Because it's a commercial commercial use permit. Yeah, because we're gonna take the footage and then sell it. Um, this was a National Wildlife Refuge, which we've had permits before in the past, but what we didn't realize is that on Nunavak, um, most of the refuge is wilderness as well. And so they don't really give out commercial film permits or any kind of commercial permit on wilderness too much. And so... But you can guide hunters out there. Yes. Kind of just like you can in the Bob Marshall. This is a side note to what I think is like a seriously bullshitty thing on part of the federal government. Is that you can get a permit in the Bob Marshall Wilderness Area to every day march up 20 tourists on horseback, load them onto rafts, raft them down the river, have a giant base camp set up at the trailhead, generators running, hauling in horse feed every day all summer long. And that's A-OK. Commercial use. But two dudes and a camera can't go in there. Well, 
It's are, such bullshit, man. They are reworking the, the, the rules and, and the regs. On yeah, it. but you want to talk about high-impact use. No, I hear you. But I think those, those rules were written for back in the day when, any, when basically if someone was going to come to film, it was going to be like a big Hollywood production. Yeah, so setting they, up fake Western towns. Yeah, and, and they're like, no, we don't want that. Understandable. Now it's different because you can go in there and film a show like you just said with a couple guys, a couple cameras. Yeah, because like an outfitter, and I'm not, I'm not hacking. I'm not saying the outfitter shouldn't be able to do it, but an outfitter could be like, he's got wall tent camp set up every which way, packing in dudes on horses, right, setting up full on little villages out there, electrified wires to keep grizzlies out, stacks of hay, cutting firewood, and you can't be out there with a backpack and a handy cam. Do they still make handy cams? Mm-hmm. You can't be out there with a backpack and a camera. You, know. you can, as long as you're not going to... Yeah, but we're talking about commercial use. The guys that run those rafting companies where they're hauling in 30 people every day to float down rafts aren't out there for, for charity. No. It just, it just seems like... It, it just strikes me as being not fair. There's a case to be made, and we're going to work on it. We're going to yeah. get a film permit. So the, at the refuge, they're actually reviewing their film permit process, and so we couldn't even apply for a permit. Right. So we can't film the whole... The, the new... The, the, the Chupik, this is something I don't even want to get into, but, the, but native communities are organized into corporations in Alaska. It's not like the reservation system in the lower 48. Native communities, through the Native Claims Settlement Act, which is put in under Carter, have corporations where, where native community members are shareholders in a corporation and sort of their world is run as a corporation. They own this big, long strip across the north shore of Nunavak. Yeah, it's like... Anywhere, I think, from like one to three miles from the shoreline inland. For how many miles does that thing run? I think about 30, basically from McCoyuk to Nash Harbor. And uh, when I applied, when I first applied for the permit, trying to get it, I had some spots that, that our James Whitman, our uh, outfitter, had told me we were going to hunt. The dude came back and said, oh, well, all that stuff's on NEMA Corporation land, so... You guys can film there as much as you want, as long as Nemo will let you. And uh, so they did. We paid a trespass fee, and uh, they signed a location release for us. And we basically had to find a muskox on that land if you guys were going to get to see us hunt muskox. Which is a big chunk of land, but it's like... Right, from what we later found out is that as the season progresses, there's muskox like a couple miles from town the first day of the hunt, you know, when the first dudes come in. And then as those animals are hunted, hassled, they just move farther south, farther south, which is basically just getting away from Akoryuk. And so by the time, we were the last group on the island to hunt muskox. For yeah, thing. no one was out there hunting when we were out there. No, I think there was a couple locals. Yeah, yeah, doing, yeah, yeah, doing their hunt, yeah. but there's no more. Um, the day we actually no got out, some dudes were leaving on a snow machine to go hunt a cow. Yeah. They blew past us. One of those guys had rain bibs on, I remember. Yeah. So the client, he was ready to butcher. The client that James had previous to us killed his muskox basically on the southern tip of the island, 50 miles, one direction away from town. Was it 50 miles just out? Yeah. And then 50 miles back? Oh, yeah. I thought that was combined. That would have been brutal. No, man, he did, he did 100 miles on a snow machine that day. Oh. Yeah. So, thank goodness. We probably found the only bull. Yeah, I was doing some serious praying, you know. I don't pray too often, but I was praying that we could find. Who are you a, directing them to? Huh? Just the universe. You're praying to the universe? Yeah. For muskox to be on Nemo land? Yes. The bull muskox. Oh, it worked. 
The other suit, the other <laughs> thing. That, what's way more interesting than hunting muskox is hunting walrus. And these guys go out. Um, when the ice starts to break up in late spring, they go out and hunt walrus. They look, they cruise around their boats trying to find walrus that are hauled out on the ice flows. And a walrus weighs two thousand pounds, and they kill him with a two twenty three in the head. Ray was going to go kill his cow muskox with a two two three. Yeah, in the head. Yeah, he said, "You hit that walrus right," and he kind of showed me where you got to hit it. He said it just crumples. And he hunts seals the same way. Hit him in the head with a two twenty three, close range, and pile him up. And then you jack that walrus up on the ice if he falls in the water and you start chopping up a 2,000-pound critter. Oh, so they butcher it on the ice? Yeah. They don't, ta- they don't haul it on the boat? No. They, I guess it would be impossible. I'd like to get involved in that. Yeah, we really wanted to. Unfortunately, we were just a little too early. It sounds like the seal and the walrus hunting is in about another month. Yeah, so we went out and fished these tomcod, and he was showing us a traditional thing they eat where... Like a tomcod's about, if you're familiar with lake perch, tomcod's as big as a lake perch. Looks just like a damn cod, but it's like the size of a perch, you know? Well, like eight, 10 inches. Yeah. 12 inches for a big one, big fatty. And they take a, a they, they freeze, I mean, the fish freezes rock ass solid the minute you pull it out of the water. But they take the fish, take a ulu knife and cut, not fillets, just shave off pieces of the fish frozen rock solid and then just dip it in seal oil and eat it and our guide's wife our guide was born out there our wife is you know chupik and was born there she was saying that her father had explained that if you just lived on tomcod you would starve to death but if you ate tomcod dipped in seal oil you could stay alive and I asked her if that was something that in his generation was a reality. And she said, oh, yes. Like, they, you know, they could at that time were still, you know, just in her father's lifetime, face starvation. She had a picture of her father hanging on the wall dressed completely in skins. You know, boots up. Mm-hmm. Now the most common skin item you see is seal skin hats, which Yanni actually bought. <laughs> No, I actually almost. almost (laughs) We were close. This wasn't our style. (laughs) Yeah, it's just flash me a look that suggests he doesn't want to talk about his seal skin hat. No, no, I have no problem at all sharing the story. It's you know, it's pretty interesting. It was it was a tense negotiation. Yeah, it was. So Tia Tia, when do you guys talk? When do you guys I, I don't I wasn't even there. I was sick. Yeah, Steve was laid up. Yeah, I had like I had gastrointestinal issues much of the time I was out there. No, when we tapering got, when off we, right when now. When we got to town, our, everybody's wearing these great looking sealskin hats. You know, Ray's got a beard. No, F- ribbon, F-B-R. ribbon seal, ribbon seal. Yeah, yeah ribbon which you said is a rare seal to yeah. run into. A big ass and rare then, seal. Uh, James is wearing a uh, bearded, bearded. Well, that's kind of what we've seen. Oh, and in town here in Bethel, we had seen some beaver hats. Steve's rocking a new beaver hat. Corey and I are like, all right, cool. When's the next time we're going to be on no that's old. Hat? That's an old beaver hat. You guys were on the hunt. I mean, you're like, yeah. you guys were yeah. out. What's happening yeah. like that? We, yeah, you guys were cute. We, we pulled people hats. over on the streets and uh, asked if we could take a picture of their Where'd hat. Where'd you get that from? What's that made and out of? Then we'd try it on. Yeah. 
Yeah, the Korean dude selling $28 hamburgers. He had an amazing fur hat. And he said he paid 300 bucks for it. And I'm like, you got ripped. But then I realized he didn't get ripped at all. Mm-mm. No. Dude, Alex a bag of zip, a bag of like bad Ziplocs up here is eight bucks. Yeah. Mayonnaise. Tell them the man, mayonnaise. Man, a jar of mayonnaise is $12, which is, that's insanity. If you want to ride a cab across the street, it's $20. <laughs> Every, everywhere, double, everything's three, three double. Yeah, as a guy explained, a, a cab driver was trying to explain how expensive. Where's the cab driver from? He was Korean. Yeah, most of the cab drivers were finding our um, Albanian. Korean or Albanian. It was a Korean segment of the cab driving population. He was trying to explain how expensive everything was and explain to these guys that it's not double. It's three double. <laughs> that was our catchphrase for the hunt. What was I just asking you guys to talk about? Oh, the hat. The hat. Yeah. So we basically are, are told that you know a, a relative of someone's can... Make these hats for us. We're like, sweet. We're Would like, make you a seal hat. Seal hat, you know, beaver trim. So we're literally looking at one hat, thinking like, all right, this is the hat. We're getting made. And it's like very like, okay, you guys sure you want it? We're like, yeah, cool. We're kind of asking like, should we have it? And made? it's a very muted, the seal skin is very muted on the one you're looking at. Yes. It's like a dull gray, some black markings. Yeah, it it's almost, a muted color. It's real subtle. You would yeah. hunt in it, and as they age, the hair stands up on the on yeah. the skin itself. So it's it real. A, fun. It has a blonde kind of a blonde. fuzz to it, almost. Yeah, yeah. dirty blonde, though. dishwater blonde, kind of brownie blonde, brownie blonde. <laughs> so three or four days into it, we're told that hey, both the hats are ready. Let's go. You guys need to go over there. They take your hat size too, right? Buy the measurements. No. No, no, we, no, we didn't do that. You didn't because they got a pad. I was a little nervous about that. It was basically like, yeah, you want large, medium, or small? Oh, you know. So we tried on a few other hats and said, okay, this is large. I'll probably be small. Whatever. Yeah, that was the most nerve wracking part. Was is it going to fit? You know. Yeah. So when he said you're like, supposed to go over and look at the hat. No, no, no. We need to go over and buy that. They're ready for you to buy. Oh. You put your order in. And so I've been looking, in 2012, I lived in Fairbanks. I saw a lot of these hats there as well, too. Seal I, I almost bought one there. It's the a same, seal hat. The same hat. Seal hat with the beaver trim. Some of them had like a, almost like a, the thicker wolf lining, you know, that would give you a little yeah. more, uh, you know, wind protection. So I've been in the market because I feel like sitting on a really high uh, glass and tit when the wind's howling, like you glass forever wearing that hat. You know? Yeah, I, I, yeah. I, we, I should point out there is no hat warmer than a fur hat. Yeah, like it hasn't been matched. Like no one has matched. Like my beaver fur hat. It's like no one has matched that with a synthetic material. Right. It's like the subtropics. Of it's your just hair. like. Yeah. You know, you can't hear any. You can't hear anything. You can't hear anything. But you're not gonna hike in it. So like, anyways, huh? we walk a couple minutes across, you know, a couple through back, but the back alleys of McCoryick and into another house. No cameras allowed, we were told. And there are these hats, and they are spotted seal. So it's like this blonde, bright blonde base with basically black, splotchy kind of polka dots. <laughs> it's like, it's like leopard. It's like a leopard. Almost, almost leopardy. Yeah. And instead of being like a natural beaver on the, I don't know what you call that part of the hat, but it's basically the forehead, 
I don't know if it's an accent or if it's actually uh, technically does something and maybe it, it keeps your forehead warmer, but it's a second layer of beaver on the hat. But it's dyed black, like dyed shiny black. Did it say tourist on it? Or just- <laughs> <laughs> right? It said gaper, I think. <laughs> and, uh, you know, mine was, I don't know, uh, trimmed in rabbit. Yours was, tr- uh, Corey's was trimmed in something that couldn't be identified by anybody in the room. She did not know what it was made out of. Tell that part of the story because that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, so we're like looking at him now. And we're like, man, like this is not what we thought we were getting. And like, I want a seal skin hat. I want to wear it. I want to pay three hundred dollars. Yeah, it looked like something like Liberace would order. Yeah, what? Well, <laughs> someone in Aspen, you know? Yeah, some, some gal female in and, Aspen. Yeah, a female in Aspen's not gonna wear a seal skin hat. Oh, yeah. Oh, this one. This it's one? very style. I mean, it's beautiful. No, I mean, just because the whole thing, because they, they'd know that a seal had died. They'd like furs. Do they? Oh, yeah. Oh, all right. I stand corrected. Doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, so, anyways, we've, we've, we've entered this sort of, you know, contractual, you know, verbal agreement by having these hats made for us. Oh, how, well, when you first walked in there, she was just like, oh, I worked nonstop. She was like, she was shaking her hands, and, and she, was, she was elderly, and she's, she was just like, I've been working nonstop for two days to make these hats for you to so make sure that you got them before you left. So, I mean, like, you know, the, the pressure's on now. It's like, these are yours. Top it all off, we, just, we were getting ready to actually go shoot outside to cat, you know, just shoot ta- shots of McCoryick. We're in like full down, triple, triple double, no, three double down layers, bunny boots and everything, walk into this house, and now we get into this uncomfortable situation in like, you know, just as many clothes as you could possibly have on, and we are sweating bullets. And finally, I just have to be like, look, I don't want to disrespect you. We need to get out of this situation. And with enough talking, she finally offered up that said, hey, I don't want a discount for you. Don't buy them at a discount. I can sell them somewhere else. And we basically ended it with that it was a miscommunication. Well, well then her husband comes in and like and everything it kind of like found a, like a nice resolve. Mm, that's right. And, and he comes in and he introduces himself and then he sits down. And he's like, he's like, well, what's wrong with these hats? He's like, what's wrong with you guys? Why, why don't you like these hats? Like, get you know, kind of he was offended that they didn't like them or they didn't well, want to purchase them. Yeah, yeah you boys wanted. To, he's, he's like, what's wrong with these hats? These are perfectly fine. You put them on. You boys Where? wanted a seal hat. You got a seal, a seal hat. hat. You, you ask for one, you get one. You know what the moral of the story is. If you want a ribbon seal hat, you gotta say ribbon seal. Exactly, you're exactly yeah. right. You are exactly right. Or bearded seal. Beard, yeah. And then she had a lot of other things. But it, it's it, there is definitely a, a, a little feeling of like, okay, remember we're in like a very small town of 200 people. We're on an island. Like we are outsiders. We need to play this very yes. Cool. We want to get out of here. With some <laughs> diplomacy, yeah. Yeah, but I understand too because these these hats are not um, cheap. No, three hundred bucks a piece. Three hundred bucks, yeah. So just so listeners realize, we're talking about a three hundred dollar hat, and for three hundred bucks, you should get what you want. Yeah, you know, because it's certainly it's a very it's vastly inflated. You know, the dude that wanted my the dude that wanted my um. A guy wanted one of my rifles, a 17 caliber rifle. And when I talked about how maybe I would pry his sealskin hat out of him for it, he didn't act like that was any kind of sacrifice on his part whatsoever. You know, I think sealskin hats grow on trees. <laughs> the spotted ones, apparently. Yeah. But they're sweet looking, man. 
the, yeah, when they're the, done right, the they're official cool. ones are badass. Yeah. 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 So either way, Corey and I are still seal skin hatless. Yeah. The uh the, the I just would I wish we could have identified what was the interior of yours, Corey, because I think we it, tra- it was <laughs> you could say it was like this is this made a dog? <laughs> I think it was dog. Some sort of dog. Yeah. Another thing they got going on out here, which is cool, is you go so there are no native Nunavak has no large native land mammals. Um, for native animals, native land mammals, they have a variety of small voles and things. Um, Arctic fox, red fox. That's about it. I think a red fox is the biggest native land land mammal they have out there. But for, for a long time, though, they've had a herd of reindeer. Mm-hmm. And they have muskox. And muskox, while they were in, like historically they were inland, they weren't, doesn't seem that they were actually on Nunavak. They were inland, but they weren't on the island. Um, the island at one time had mammoths and all kinds of stuff, but you know when the, when the sea levels were much, much lower, but when the sea levels rose and that in the Bering Sea, which is very a shallow ocean, was just like a, you know, a grassland steppe environment, it had many animals, water level rose, things turned to tundra eventually. No big stuff out there, but now they got muskox and reindeer. And they, you know, reindeer is like, the term reindeer is sort of a, like a reindeer is a Eurasian caribou. People talk about different species of caribou, woodland, mountain, um, barren ground, but a geneticist doesn't even geneticists don't even really draw a distinction between reindeer or the European caribou and the, the caribou that we have here. But it, regard they have a reindeer population, so seed stock of the animals came from Europe, and they're like a domestic critter out there. They don't do any agriculture; they just feed on tundra. They live a wild life. But I guess what makes them domestic is they round them up with snow machines and slaughter them. And the where they do their slaughtering is about maybe like three and a half, four miles from the village. And they slaughter reindeer on what is the biggest lake on the island. And the lake's frozen solid. And again, you wouldn't know you're on a lake. It just looks like snow everywhere and flat stuff, but you're on a lake. They drive, the, they built these big driveline fences, like funnel fences. They go out on snow machines and push the reindeer out onto this ice shoot all the reindeer in the head with a, I'm assuming with a 22 or 223 apparently, kill all the reindeer. And then everybody in the village buys reindeer. This year, I think the going price is 250 bucks from a reindeer, for a reindeer. That's just like what they pay. So like that's what a community member pays to access one of the reindeer that's owned by the community. And there's some commercial slaughtering going on too where some guy is shooting reindeer and then shipping the meat out. So they butcher these reindeer out on the ice and they're just pulling meat off them. Like all the heads, all the horns, all the hides are just laying out on the ice. Spring comes, ice melts, and all that stuff just goes into the lake. They've been doing this for decades and decades and decades. And I think if you wanted to make the weirdest video ever, you would go to that lake and snorkel around or scuba dive around filming decades worth of caribou or decades worth of reindeer 
skulls and horns accumulated on the bottom of a tundra lake where nothing breaks down. Boneyard, underwater. Nothing breaks down there. It's pretty cool. I mean, that's what tundra is, is just like vegetation that doesn't decompose. You know, it is probably the creepiest place on the planet. You couldn't wade through there. No, no. It is just, so the ice is covered with slaughtered caribou bits and pieces. And like, you go out there and it's just like red fox and arctic fox just a coming and going out there. The Arctic fox coming off the sea ice. The red fox come off the island. I got one of each. A red fox and an Arctic fox. And um, Whitman was telling me that in the old days, when Arctic foxes were worth 100 bucks, he'd just sit out there in a little hut shooting Arctic fox and selling them. And another thing he did for business, we're talking about fishing tomcod, he would call into Bethel here, find out who wanted tomcod, and he'd sell frozen tomcod for two fifty dollars a pound. Catch them through the ice, freeze them, send them by air to Bethel. We didn't catch five bucks for the tomcod at that price. You know, now they fish halibut commercially out there. The single most valuable tool I have for chasing turkeys next to my scatter gun is the Onyx Hunt app. If I'm hunting turkeys, I'm using Onyx. If I'm not hunting turkeys, I'm using Onyx. I'm always using Onyx. I live by that stuff. I can't tell you the number of birds this app has put me on by allowing me to easily find new areas to hunt. It's invaluable. I use it all the time. Even properties I know super well. And I'm at my buddy Bubbly Doug's house. I'm using Onyx, and I've hunted this place a million times. With their compass mode, I can pinpoint exactly on the map where a gobble rang out from and then figure out the perfect spot to set up. Meaning, if I'm sitting there, let's say I'm at Bubbly Doug's, and I'm in the navel, and I hear, Pow! I'll like instinctively pull up bubbly doug's place on on x and i'll look at the topography and i'll be like oh that sucker must be over in that little opening over there waypoints also and the ability to share them okay comes in handy every spring whether that's revisiting old waypoints where i've been on birds before or sharing them to buddies to help put them on birds this app will help you find more turkeys on x hunt has a special offer for you too Use code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt this turkey season. Man, I'm just coming back uh, not too long ago from youth turkey season in Wisconsin. Now, last year at youth turkey season, it rained and snowed the whole time. This year at youth turkey season, it was in the 70s and then even up to 80. So me and my kids are pouring it to it. And after a while, I realized they didn't drink anything all day and they haven't drank anything all day. Well, that's why it's important to get hydrated and have something you're going to like to help you, encourage you to get hydrated. doesn't matter. Outdoor events, turkey hunting, playing sports, beach days, mountain adventures. Summer requires extraordinary hydration that's built for everyday dehydrating moments. With three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, plus eight vitamins and nutrients in a single stick, it's clear why Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. Tear pour live more one stick plus 16 ounces of water hydrates better than water alone i'll say that again hydrates better than water alone turn your ordinary water into extraordinary hydration with liquid iv get 20 percent off your first order of liquid iv when you go to liquidiv.com and you use code meat eater at checkout that's 20 percent off your first order when you shop better hydration today using promo code meat eater at liquidiv.com 
Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. These things are super cool as a gift, especially if you got mom, aunt, grandma, whoever, and you want to like keep them up to speed on what the family's up to. Okay, It's easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Named the best digital picture frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. You can share photos to the frame instantly from anywhere, meaning you share videos, photos from any device, and they will instantly appear on the frame wherever it is in the world. There's no memory card required right now. Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use code MEATEATER at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Did you notice any of the, uh, did you see any of those big, the big antler piles with the, the, um, skins and stuff that there was holes that the Arctic or either the Arctic or the Red Fox had dug underneath the piles. So essentially just had a little, little den, little den. And they just like, you know, probably just sit there and just like take a little snack from the roof and just take a nap and just wake up and just like eat from underneath. Yeah. Just like the drip and the stuff is frozen. Everything's frozen. So rock hard. They must just rasp that stuff off. I don't know that I'll ever, I, I would be shocked if when I'm like dying, okay. On K2. Yeah. I've been telling people lately, I don't want to get into this too long, but I just want to point out. If, if, like at whatever age my kids are old enough where if I died a tragic death, it wouldn't screw them up psychologically. How old is that? Like, how old do you got to be, how old do your kids need to be that you dying tragically has a greatly reduced chance of screwing them up psychologically? 18? Yeah, adults. Adults. So, I got a one-month-old right now, and I'm 41. So... At age 60, roughly, you're going to start... At age 60, I'm going to go die on K2. So when I'm laying there dying, if you if I'm laying there dying as a man who's been to Nunavak Island twice, I'll be shocked. Mike's going back. I'll go back. I'll put it in. Why not? <laughs> I I I enjoyed my time there. Um I enjoyed my time there. I'm very glad I went there to, to have that experience. It's an animal I've always been curious about. It's a landscape that I'm curious about. I've read a lot about, you know, the Bering Sea in the Arctic. I've been around some areas. Like, I'm glad I went. But one, um, you are, you would never overcome outsider status. You know, you're not chupic. You got money. No, but you could marry in, possibly, and if you lived there, I think you'd overcome outsider status. Yeah. Maybe Maybe not with everybody. But you're still the white guy. I mean, they said that there was, there was like, oh yeah, there used to be a white guy that lived here for 25 years. But I don't hold, I don't hold, I'm not, I don't, 
I'm not even saying that as a negative, man. I totally understand it. Oh, well, everybody's, no, totally, everybody's yeah. like family. I mean, it's literally like one giant family that lives on yeah, an island. Related. Yeah. Yeah. I totally understand it. I just don't, I don't, I don't know that I'm dying to go back. Well, for the seal or for walrus. I would go back to hunt yeah. walrus. I would go back to go. I can't hunt walrus. Right. I would go back to be present for a walrus hunt. Yeah. I would go back to be present for a seal hunt to witness it. Um, but I, I'm not going to apply for DX003, the muskox hunt. Not because I didn't like it or that something's wrong with it. It's just like it was, it was a once in a lifetime thing. Not legally, but like spiritually or something. It's like a once in a lifetime thing. Now, for me, like if I go down you know, and, and hunt national forest land, right? All I, when I walk out of there, all I want to do is go back and hunt again. But I didn't get that feeling hunting muskox. Yeah, that's a good point. I felt like um, in large measure, uh, I felt like an interloper out on the muskox. I, I just felt, yeah, I didn't feel like a... Um, I didn't feel like an ecological participant. I felt more like an ecological voyeur. Is that because of the challenge? Yeah. Just was, it's not like, uh, it's just not a kind of hunting that I'm interested in doing. I mean, I, I'm glad I went. It's not a kind of hunting I'm interested in doing. Well, it's kind of like if, you know, I'm going to go see the Leaning Tower of Pisa. Once you've done it, what, are you going to go back and see it again? Yeah. I mean, you know, you, you did it. You really know, yeah. Right. But yeah, but it feels like that. But um, but most things like a lot of hunting doesn't feel like that to me, you know. Like I'm dying to get back up in the Brooks Range and hunt moose. Well, because because that's going to be a different adventure entirely. You don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, I mean this is kind of predictable. You know what? That's right. That's right. You know, I mean, if you went back and hunted muskox, it'd be the same yeah. thing. There's no. I mean, the only thing that would be surprising is if you got caught in some nasty weather and got stuck out overnight. You know in the tundra and had to do some arctic survival i mean that would be yeah which has never happened to our you know guide they're cautious doing it right exactly. yeah because because they they respect the, the land because they know it and they but there's more to it because even with something as small and simple as like the gray squirrel you're looking forward to your next gray squirrel hunt absolutely i am yeah i think there's no mystery when those boys go out when they get a good weather day they're going out and a muskox is going to die. Mm-hmm. You know, you got 400 muskox. There's like 400 muskox out on the island. The island's huge. Like, you know, I keep saying it's an island. There's no denying it's an island. But you're saying the island's, well, it's widest point close to 70 miles. Same size as Long Island, roughly. Okay. So it's an island, but it's giant, right? Giant. But you got 400 muskox out there. There's nowhere to really hide. When they go out, they're going to get a muskox if the weather's good. So it's like, uh, I don't know, man. It'd be like, I guess it's like going to the bar. Like when you're single, there's sort of an adventure to going to the, to the bar that probably doesn't exist going to a house of ill repute. <laughs> you know what's going to happen. It's kind of like buffalo hunting outside of Yellowstone. Yeah. Almost same thing. But they don't. I put in for that tag every year. <laughs> but once I draw it, I don't know if I'm going to. I mean, I put it in for it all the time. But yeah, it's like they're either there or not. If they're there, you're going to kill one. But they're not hunting for novelty. They're hunting for food. Who? The, the locals on New you know? Oh, I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about me. Right, right. For them, it's, yeah, it's a subsistence harvest. Yeah, yeah I'm, talk, I'm trying to put into words why 
sometimes I'll come back from a hunt and all I want to do is go do it again. Like for instance, that hunt we did in the, like hunting coos deer. Yeah. When were we down there? Uh, December. Beginning of December. All right. Sign me up, man. Yeah. I'm ready to go. I didn't even get a deer. And therein lies the catch. Maybe that's why I want to go. Because there's a level of uncertainty, but it's not like this is a secret because you can go on Alaska Department of Fish and Game's website and go look at success rates. So every year they give out X number of tags. Let's say on a typical year they give out 30 tags. You'll go look and it'll be like, they issued 30 tags, 22 dudes actually showed up. And most years it'd be like 21 killed a muskox. You know? So going into it, you're like, all right, you set aside a week. And the reason you're setting aside a week is you're trying to get a good weather day. We got lucky and had, we, like, we had a day, we, we had a day, we got stuck in Bethel, couldn't even fly, for, it's a little bit complicated, but we couldn't have flown to Bethel, we couldn't have flown out there even that day, couldn't even have flown out there. Definitely could have hunted that day. Had another day when it wasn't good to hunt. Had later. But the day we got there, just so happened we got there, it was a good hunt day. And when those boys loaded up those trailers and those snow machines, there was no doubt what was going to happen that day. We were killing the muskox. Mm-hmm. You know. And, but I don't know, man. Like, if I went to my mom's house right now on September 15th, opening day of squirrel, and I call... Mrs. Zeldenrust, and I said, Mrs. Zeldenrust, can I come and hunt squirrels on your place? Not only do I know I'm going to get a squirrel, I'm going to get the daily bag limit of five. It would take an act of God to, for me to not get five. That's enjoyable to me. So is it that? I don't know what it is. I'm going to kill five squirrels. Absolutely. If I'm out of Miles City and we're going to go hunt cottontails, we're going to kill cottontails. I'm going out there next week to fish catfish. We're going to knock the hell out of them. Is it not fun now? Dude, I know we're going to catch catfish. So then what is it? I don't know. It's a mystery. Maybe it's the serenity wasn't there. Yeah. Loud snowmobiles. Yeah. Bumpy yeah. travel. Yeah. Cold. Yeah. No exercise. Maybe you're not in the driver's seat. It might be a guided hunt thing. Because think about it like this. Say you'd gone out there and it wasn't administered. It wasn't that you had to land on, on native land. Okay? And it was just you could just have a pilot who's got a plane on skis. You could fly around. You can't hunt the same day you fly. You flew around, found a herd, put down somewhere a couple miles or a mile away so you're not going to disturb them set up camp, and then out on foot, you'd be like, I'm coming back, dude. That was a blast. You know? It's just the mechanics of the hunt itself. Just, That's yeah. Plus. How long have we been talking for, Yanni? We're at an hour plus. All right. That's all you guys paid for is one hour. We're going to log out. Um, any concluding thoughts, Mike? Texas is big. <laughs> Mike just wants to clarify just how big Texas is. I wish you best of luck. Best of luck in the uh, muskox draw next year. Yeah, Yeah, have your when you give your concluding thoughts right now. Yeah, tell us where you're at on doing the muskox draw. Uh, To to be able to take part in it as a 
I, well, you know, you bring up some good points. And it, no, 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 screw what I said. I'm just talking. I don't know what I'm talking about. Well, I can't subtract those from my brain. They're already in there. Um, I don't know. I, I mean, like you said, it is a once in a, a, a one lifetime kind of thing to do. And it'd be nice. Yeah, because, I, you know, we took part in it. So I have, you know, the whole operation and stuff. And so it's less of a mystery. So maybe, I don't know if that's a bad thing or a good thing. But to do it yourself, I think would be kind of cool. I'd like to come, you know, bring my dad. Yep. And like, you know, be able to share in that experience. It's a great experience because it, I mean, it, there's no place that I've been to that's more. I mean, save the you know southern slope of the Brooks Ranch when we were there. Just vast, open, just it's bleak, but it has its own really like sharp edged beauty to it. And you know, there's something about the landscape that is just so. It's I mean, like I said, you know, it's like it's another planet. And yeah, and you'll never see. I mean, you know, that stuff like that doesn't exist in Texas. It has its own. As big as it is. As big as it is. It doesn't have that. doesn't have Arctic tundra. doesn't have snow dunes. <laughs> so to be able to, to or, or be able to experience that vicariously to bring somebody else there would be pretty cool. You know, having the knowledge of, of being there and taking part in their, in their community and stuff. And just, and, you know, just in a cultural sense, being able to see how, you know, other people live. That's what's so great about this job is you get to go all these different places and experience yeah. all these different people and stuff and that's that's rewarding in itself beyond the animal see you're making me feel like a dick now for what i said because everything you're, you're saying is no because i was trying to talk you're shaming me <laughs> on my own podcast i was trying to speak to just the the the, the just hunt. The, i know just the hunt yeah culturally right i loved it okay yeah, I, granted, the the hunt is its own kind of beast. It's, no, and, it's and you hit the nail on the head. It was the mechanics of the hunt. Yeah. yeah, we can we can let that one lay rest. I mean, but yeah, being there, dude, eating frozen tomcod dipped yeah. in seal oil. There are few places. Is this or, your wrap up, or is Mike still doing his wrap up? Um, it. it you know, because the, you know, right now it's just such it putting that the chances of actually drawing that tag. I mean, it would be more of just like a, yeah, let's see what happens, you know, throw, throw on the wall, see if it sticks. And then I would have to like, okay, is, you know, if I did draw a tag, okay, is this really going to happen? And then there would be a whole other process of like thinking about that and if I actually pulled the trigger on it. But, you know, right now in just like a far off, not real place, it's like, yeah, sure, it might be kind of cool, but definitely not, definitely not for the, you know, the challenge of the hunt for sure. Yeah. Yeah, honey. I feel like there's few places in the United States of America that are as exotic in both like landscape and culture and activity and animal as what we just experienced. Like, That's true. Putting all those things together. Where else are you going to go to really like get that far out of your comfort zone across the board like that? Yeah. Not necessarily comfort zone, but just like what you know about. Like we, re- I mean, de- like even at the airport here in Bethel, dudes are talking, you know, some dialect of Eskimo. Like it's the real deal. You are way out here in Eskimo. Country. It was shocking to be with people who are speaking Chupik. Yeah, like you know, like these people are like into James. We we touched on the Tom Cod in the seal oil. James Whitman's wife really never really hung out with us too much, didn't really eat with us, even as paying clients like around the dinner table. When we busted out that Tom Cod in the she seal oil, she was in it and was like, 
This, this stuff's the bomb, you know? Yeah, I mean, she had a whole fish before you even got the first bite. Like, you know, like, it's yeah. cool. Um, it's Would you put in for the tag? Not yet. <laughs> not yet. Well, um, give me your concluding thoughts. I'm very excited to uh, add, I think, species number 10 to my freezer with that 50-pound uh, Oh, we box. didn't talk about the meat. 50-pound box of meat that you so generously rich, shared. Rich, rich, very good meat, but very rich. Yeah. Fatty meat. It's good. We ate some. It was great. The yeah, ribs were good. We ate some ribs that were tasty. We ate pont. No, we ate uh, diaphragm. What else did we eat? I think that's this it. This is raw. Raw. Rich, fatty meat. We wound up with easy. We have over 200 pounds of meat. Yeah, my box weighed in at 60-something. 60? So, yeah, so we're each going home with 60 pounds of, you know, untrimmed meat. Bo- no bone. Untrimmed, but bone. Yeah. But you'll probably yield, you know, 40. I got a sack of Tomcod. Me and Corey got a sack of Tomcod, dude. Yeah. Kids going to be eating shavings. Tomcod. <laughs> <laughs> so is that, is that your concluding thoughts? It is. Thank Corey, you. concluding I'm thoughts? Out. I had a great time. I mean, uh, the experience, and I agree with everyone on the cultural aspect of it, was amazing. I think that the imagery that's going to stick in my mind the rest of my life is like pulling alongside, you know, paralleling the muskox running and looking off the snowmobile thinking, wow, you know, this is like Jurassic Park or something. You know, where's the saber-toothed tiger now? But, you know, that animal's just like gliding on the tundra and, it is wild. See, yeah. that animal took him to the ice age. He was right there. Well, I mean, Dude, it did me too. I, 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 know I, was hacking on the, I know I was hacking on the ice age thing, but when I looked at him, I'm like, if I was just sitting here, if you, if you said to me, like if I somehow lost my position in time, okay, like a, you somehow could be confused where you were in the space-time continuum, and you sat me down with my binoculars on that glass and tit, and I looked out, I'd be like, well, there's a mammoth down there is what I would think. I had talked about this a couple of times out there. Is the, when I first saw muskox, it was the first time I went caribou hunting. And we drove up to hunt caribou. Like, didn't hire. We just like did it with a canoe and a truck. And it was the first time I'd ever hunted in Alaska. And it was, way, it was 15 years ago. I knew that there was a thing called a muskox that existed, but I couldn't have told you if it existed there still or not or where. I knew it was just like, I knew it was a creature. Right. And all of a sudden, we're looking at something through our binoculars. You know? It was like looking across some, talk about confusion in space-time continuum. It really was like, I wasn't like clear what I was looking at. I could be like, oh, there's a muskox. But I'm like, but what is a muskox? Like, where are they right now as a species? Right. Am I, did I, am I seeing the last one? You know? Like, what am I looking at? It's just there's not a lot of awareness about that animal. An ice age remnant. Because it's an ice age remnant. <laughs> it's like the Norway rat. Corey. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, overall, a beautiful trip. Really? Yeah. Those old ice shanties just sitting on the edge of the Bering Sea like that. More sunrises. Sunsets were amazing. I think we got lucky with the weather. Like, yeah, really, we had five days straight of, you know, partly cloudy to sunny days.
You had to have liked watching me jack those Tomcat up through that hole in the ice. Oh, yeah. That was inspiring for you, probably. I think making the hole was <laughs> the best. <laughs> I don't know, man. It wore out. It wore a hole through my beaver mitten, man. It did? Yeah. wore a hole through my beaver mitten. It's worked for those holes. Four oh, hours. Four hours of hole pounding. All right, Yanni's giving me the old wrap it up. Thanks for listening. Say, say thanks for listening in Latvian, and I'll shut up. Paul Diaz, can you use Klausi at this? All right, signing out, Mediator Podcast. Tune in next time. Hey, listen up. This sounds like an advertisement, but it's not. It's, 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 it's different than an ad. I need you guys and gals that listen to go check out the Complete Guide to Hunting, Butchering, and Cooking Wild Game, which is written by myself and some people from the Meat Eater team and a collection of the best hunters from around the country. It's a two-volume set. Volume one, big game, is coming out in August. Volume two, small game, comes out in December. Um, Again, it's called The Complete Guide to Hunting, Butchering, and Cooking Wild Game. It totals about 750 pages of content dealing with gear, tags, hunting basics, advanced hunting strategies, field butchering, recipes, Everything you need to know to be a better hunter or to get started in hunting if you haven't done it before. If I had had this book when I was a kid, it would have changed my life. It's going to change yours. I'm not joking. You can pre-order now. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, IndieBound, Target, Powell's, Walmart, wherever books are sold. It's out there. It's beautiful. It's huge. It's two volumes. Do yourself a favor. Do me a favor. Give this book a look. Hey, I'm excited to share our newest sponsor here on the Meat Eater Podcast, which is Poncho Outdoors. The reason I'm excited is I buy their shirts anyways. Dude, they make some good shirts. And they even have an option where if you're like a skinny dude, you can click like the skinny dude thing. It's great. Based in Austin, Texas, Poncho is committed to crafting the world's best outdoor shirts for men. Poncho is only sold on their own website. So head over to ponchooutdoors.com, use code MEATEATER, for a free hat or t-shirt with any purchase of a shirt. Poncho offers free shipping and returns, so you can try them out risk-free. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.